I was in a coma for six weeks while the doctors told my wife I was going to die. When I woke up, she told me the most fantastic story. My team kept running the business without me. Freelancers reached out to my team and said, we will do whatever it takes as long as Craig's in the hospital. I consider that the greatest accomplishment in my career. My name is Craig Andrews, and this is the Leaders and Legacies podcast, where we talk to leaders creating an impact beyond themselves. At the end of today's interview, I'll tell you how you can be the next leader featured on this show. All right, I want to welcome Molly Kawahata. She is the founder of Systemic Impact Strategies, a former White House advisor in the Obama administration, and avid ice climber with a focus on the Alaskan range. Her life story is depicted in the Patagonia film, The Scale of Hope. First off, Molly, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. You know, one of the things I've said in life is if I have the chance to listen to somebody who's advised a president, I don't care if it was a president I voted for or a president I didn't vote for, I want to hear what that person says. And that's so cool that you were involved in the Obama administration. Yeah, I was a member of his white, cl- white of the White House climate team specifically. Okay. Yeah, so uh, help folks know, I mean, so that's a pretty short bio. Help people understand what do you do? What are you doing now? What were you doing then? What yeah, you know, who are you and what do you do? Yeah. Um, so my consulting firm, Systemic Impact Strategies, focuses on kind of two areas. One, my background as a climate advisor coming out of that. Um, corporate climate strategy we cover, as well as uh, helping, you know, advise campaigns, foundations, nonprofits on anything related to kind of the climate space. The focus is specifically moving companies and organizations away from focusing on their carbon footprint into focusing on systemic change at large. Now, the second vertical we have, which started to be built out based on my new work I'm doing, is on organizational development around hope hope-based leadership, and hope in the workplace. There's an incredible body of research uh, in the field of positive psychology led by uh, Dr. Rick Snyder, who's a psychologist at the University of Kansas, as well as several others that have helped develop this field from hope as a theory to hope as an actual proven science. And the implications for, for leadership and the workplace are pretty profound in how it can change the operations of organizations, as well as the mental health and well-being of leaders and employees. So I hear what you're saying. I think I see something, but I know there are people out there listening saying, oh, this is just a bunch of frou-frou crap, you know, Mm -hmm. just hope, you know, what what was the movie? Hope floats. Help us connect the dots. You say there's science behind this. Yeah. So to be honest, I am the most unlikely messenger to be here talking with you about hope because for a lot of my life, I was deeply cynical and I thought hope was this like woo-woo concept. I honestly thought it was an indicator of being naive, of not kind of understanding reality. Uh, You know, we all hear hope is not a strategy. I would be the first to raise my hand about that. Um, and, And because of struggles I've had in my life as well, I just, it's not something I understood personally. I didn't really know what hope felt like. 
So it was this interesting progression I went through to now being who I am as somebody who talks about hope is an unapologetic idealist and recognizes really not just the idea that it's like a nice thing or it feels good, but that it's one of the most efficient ways to reach a goal. So let's talk about like what hope is to begin with, because there's so many misconceptions about what it is, and it gets mixed up with two other things. So the first thing is a wish. A wish is just something that you want to happen. That's it. When you say, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, you're really stating a wish. I wish it doesn't rain tomorrow. It's just something you want. Let let me pause you right there. Whoever is saying that clearly doesn't live in Austin, Texas. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're like praying for rain. We went... We, we went 60 days without rain this summer and, and it like sputtered a little bit. So anyway, sorry. I know. But, no, exactly. So I anyway, wish, so, so you're really saying, I wish it rains tomorrow in Austin, right? Uh, and so that's a wish. The other thing that hope gets mixed up with is optimism. Optimism is simply the belief that the future can be better. That's it. So the belief that good outcomes can occur. And then hope is specifically the belief that the future can be better and that you have the agency to make it better. Now, with that, without that last part, the agency, none of the research would really exist. Hope is much more effective than optimism. So optimism is often, you know, you believe things in general in the world just kind of turn out, things go better. You do hear about folks who talk about, you know, and see things this way, but in a business context, that's not a strategy. But hope. In, in figuring out how to empower employees to understand their role in making your organization better and making it realize its mission, that alone can change everything. So when organizations can systematically increase the hope level of their employees, what happens? Retention increases, productivity increases, employee engagement increases, team dynamics improve, and employee cynicism goes way down. Employee cynicism is kind of this interesting concept, right? That those are people who are like, up, oh, another problem happened. Up, oh, the deal fell through. Like this expectation that things just like don't go well, that can actually be incredibly dangerous in the workplace. Uh, and hope can very much alleviate that. Fear-based cultures, hope can immediately be a counter. Um, because basically in the brain, there are two circuits. There's a fear circuit, and then there's what we would consider a hope circuit. And they're what's called counterposed, meaning they cannot be on at the same time. When you have hope and the hope circuit is active, then the fear circuit turns off. And when the fear circuit turns on, hope turns off. They cannot be something that exists at the same time in our brains. And so when you think about that, hope is actually a very, very effective treatment in environments where people are struggling with fear. You know, you touched on uh, cynicism and immediately my mind went back to my first job out of college. Um, I worked for a large company that made a lot of bad mistakes, bad decisions, at least in my mind. Uh, Bottom line is time proved me right, them wrong. But I remember we had these little things hanging on the edge of our cubes and it was made out of cheap, you know, sort of colorful paper, uh, you know, like... um, you know, not glossy paper, but each tab was what to do in case of a fire, what to do in case of whatever. And so when one of the day, days when one of our projects got canceled again, I added a, a tab to it, what to do in the case of a project, and kind of, you know, project cancellation and went through and it said, 
Don't throw away your notes. Somebody thought it was a good idea before. They'll probably think it's a good idea again. But it was very cynical. And yeah. that's a common um, thing. So you're saying, so obviously you're saying, I think everybody would agree that you want to get rid of cynicism, but you're saying that you have a framework for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Increasing the hope level. So these things are, hope is a counter to all of these things. And again, you know, I, I work with executives who are struggling with retention rates, right? That's one of the primary things people are discussing right now. One of the most effective ways to address that is not necessarily through, you know, huge changes, organizational changes. It can be as simple as just increasing the hope level of employees. And there are very clear ways we can do that in order to have an impact on their mental health and well-being. In fact, an executive called me the other day and she said, we're having trouble reaching our, our base. That's what they refer to because they're a very, very large apparel company with an aspirational brand. And, you know, they have a base far beyond their consumers. They have advocates that can't afford their products, but love their content and will share it, right? So they have this base, it's much larger. She said, we're having trouble connecting with them. And I said, you? And I say this because they are the model on how to do this. And so I was very shocked to hear this. And so she said, I said, can I ask you some questions? And she goes, yeah, that's why I called you. So I thought about this and she's ready for me to ask about their marketing strategy. And I said, how are your employees adjusting to, you know, the work from home, hybrid workforce, all of these issues around where people live? She goes, not really well. I go, yep, that's what we're seeing, you know, across industries right now. I said, what is the state of their mental health? She goes, oh, that's a whole other issue. I go, I don't think it is, but we'll come back to that. I said, how hopeful do your employees believe their bosses, their supervisors are, like the mid-level? Where are they at? And she's like, I don't even think we measure that. I don't even, we could talk to HR. I don't know. Why are you asking me this? And so I said, let me tell you about a study. These researchers identify children who are at risk of neglect or abuse, and they wanted to provide an intervention for them in their families in order to protect those children. Now, you would think the most effective way to protect children would be to teach the parent how to parent better, right? Like, that's what we think you would do. The number one way to protect the children ended up being to systematically increase the hope level of the adult. That's it. Increase their hope level. I said the children were the focus, but the root cause was actually an adult with low hope who is capable of doing damage to everybody around them. Mm. You increase the hope level, you increase everything else. The children were the sort the I said the children were the symptom of the problem. Your base. Well your consumers, I believe they're the symptom of your problem. The root cause is that your employees are low in hope right now. And that extends to everything, right? That extends to your work culture. It extends to your productivity. And it certainly extends to how you're reaching the public or your customers or consumers, right? So these are it's a, it's a framework in which we can think about business in a new way through this idea of hope as a science. So- I would bet that most people that are listening would say, I'm a pretty hopeful person. This isn't for me. This I should tune out now because <laughs> Ma, uh, Molly's talking to somebody that is not me. 
And I would guess that there's something they're missing. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, you've got my curiosity peaked. I'm, I'm miss, I'm missing something. How do I know if I'm one of the people that's contributing to low hope? So the idea is, and are you talking specifically in like a workplace context or in general? Let's the, let's start let's start with work. Uh, but yeah, in, yeah. The idea is, well, so let's take a step back actually to address this very clearly. There are three building blocks of hope. What is it, right? It's this idea that you have a role in making the future better. However, how do what is that comprised of? It's three things, goals, agency, and pathways. Goals. Goals are something we're setting morning to night. We don't realize this. We're achieving hundreds of goals a day, right? That can be waking up, showing up to the meeting, eating lunch. It could be surviving a natural disaster. It could be running a marathon. Short-term, long-term. A goal needs to be two things, desirable and feasible. So if I say my goal is to be in the you know, WNBA, it's not really hopeful, right? There's no feasibility there. If my goal is, if my company assigns some goal to me, and this is very relevant in sales, right? When we, we think about quotas, a lot of employees actually don't desire their own goals. Now, when you think about it that way, that has profound implications because that affects their hope levels. So anything we can do in goal setting to introduce agency or control for employees can make a very, very big difference in them personally having an intrinsic motivation to achieve them on behalf of their company. So you've used the term agency a few times. Mm -hmm. What, What would be a real simple definition of agency that everybody would get? Willpower. That's another word for it. It's your energy, your motivation to realize a strategy, to play it out, to execute. So that's the second. You need a goal. You You need need a goal. You need a pathway. Yeah. So pathways is the second thing. This is simply your roadmap to get to that goal. This is something we understand very clearly. Now, strategies around high hope people are that they're very good at uh, creating new pathways, So when they have a goal and it's set, but their current pathway isn't working, they're very efficient. And efficiency is part of this at knowing alternatives toward that goal. Now, that seems obvious, but that's actually one of the primary reasons people aren't realizing their goals in the workplace. And then the third thing we we talked about is agency to willpower. Willpower is really interesting because there are a finite amount of cognitive resources we have, right? Do you ever get home late after work, after a long day, and you snap at somebody you love? that you wouldn't have snapped at otherwise, right? We yeah. all do this. Yeah. Now, the reason is because you expended more cognitive resources in the day at work. And so when you got home, you had fewer at night to self-regulate, fewer than you usually would. So it can very much affect your self-regulation, your ability to control your emotions. Willpower is also, interestingly enough, tied to glucose in the blood. If you're low in glucose in the blood, that can very much impact your willpower. You have to make sure... You have fuel. And I have a lot of experiences in climbing where my willpower got shot because I had not been eating enough. So willpower is associated with a lot of things, as well as motivation, intrinsic motivation. A way to increase willpower is to connect folks back to a mission for them to feel that, for them to feel this intrinsic motivation in order to realize that goal. So goals, agency, and pathways. When you think about this, people have a framework. When you think about employees you're working with, for example, a low hope employee, or I'm sorry, a problematic employee is just a low hope employee. 
that's all that's happening. And a lot of times when we encounter folks like this, we have trouble kind of identifying the problem. And so we provide these interventions or performance improvement plans that might actually not be the right target for what they're dealing with. When you look at something through the HOPE framework, you can look at goals, agency, and pathways. Which of these is breaking down right now? When you can identify that, the intervention you can provide for that employee can be much more targeted and very different. You can look at a relationship too. We encounter this all the time, right? People have outcomes they're not liking relationships. Say you're fighting a lot with your partner, right? Identifying what is actually the problem here. Is it a goals, agency, or pathways thing? Is this a problem where one person in the relationship, their goals are dominating the other person's goals and they don't desire the goals in the relationship? That's a hope problem. Maybe it's a pathways problem. Our strategy to getting where we want to be, they're different. We're not aligned. That's a hope problem. So it's a framework we can use. So when you're encountering folks you're working with and you're realizing something is happening here, maybe I'm feeling hopeful, but I'm seeing they're not. Goals, agency, pathway, think of it through that framework. You know, and when you were talking about pathways, we went through something recently that I think would help people self-identify if that's a natural weakness of them. So March of 2020, when the world turned upside down, how did you respond? I mean, so I was coaching uh, people. I saw businesses just shutting down and and I I did, uh, I started doing a $25 30-minute consultation and it was kind of the COVID get started thing. Obviously, I wasn't trying to make money on it. I was using the $25 to sort out the people who cared at least $25 for their business and I found one that didn't. Uh, but what I saw was people felt stuck. They were just like, Craig, I can't run my business because all of this that happened. And there wasn't a single person I ran into that we weren't able to find a way for them to drive revenue, regardless of their business, in the new structure. Mm -hmm. Huge, right? And another component of that is agency. A lot of people felt doomed, right, when we were going through the pandemic, especially when the news was first coming and nobody knew how to deal with it. The outcome was deeply unclear with what was going to happen. So because of that, people felt no control. They just thought the economy is going to break me. The economy is going to destroy my industry. It's going to destroy my business. And so when people lost agency or control, they lost hope and that impacted their ability to act, right? That then impacted their goals and their pathways. So what you did, which is amazing, what a service you provided is that you probably in some way helped people realize they have agency, they have control in the situation. Yes, the circumstances are brutal, but you still have a role in creating this better future for yourself. When people know that, when that's restored in them, everything can change. And that's why we did see a lot of entrepreneurs thrive, build incredible businesses through a pandemic, during a pandemic for that time, uh, because of that. So in times of crisis, that's actually when hope can play the biggest role, can be the most impactful. And I'm, I'm seeing this with organizations I work, for, I work with that go through layoffs, which is often a form of collective trauma for the employees who, who stay. When they go through periods like this, they just kind of assume hope is shot. That's what they kind of think when I start working with them, but they start to realize this can actually be the prime moment to enable people to kind of understand we're at the threshold of a new dawn. And when people can understand it that way, it can kind of change the role of goals, agency, and pathways in their brain and the hope level of everybody can increase in times of crisis. 
Yeah. And, and, and it's so clear that the leaders in the organization need to be enabling this for, for their people. Um, let me ask you this, you know, the, so obviously you coach leaders, uh, you're, you're heavily focused on leadership. Um, tell me about a time in your life where you have one of these white knuckled moments where you felt like your leadership was put to the test. Do you face something that was scary? You weren't sure how it was going to work out. What was it and what happened? Yes. Okay. So I want to answer this question. I do want to come back really quickly to a point you just made, which is so important, which is that there's actually been research from Gallup, Dr. Shane Lopez, a psychologist who's also led in the hope space on hope in the workplace. And they found something profound about your boss. So if employees do not believe their boss is hopeful, right, you're talking about embodying hope, then they are mentally unhealthy more of the time. They are physically unhealthy more of the time. They're not likely to stay with their organization more than two years. And only 1% were committed to their jobs. This is not employees that are low in hope. That's not it. It's employees who do not believe their boss is hopeful. That's it. That's the impact it can have. So when you talk about leadership, hope we talk about hope-based leadership, it is so important because the research has shown it is almost impossible to spread what you do not feel. If you do not feel hope yourself, you don't have the ability to spread it. And that can really filter down all the way in organizations. We all know those stories. We all know leaders who have encountered this problem where their organization ends up as cynical as they are. So when you cultivate your own sense of hope authentically in a real way, again, looking through this framework of goals, agency, and pathways and seeing real results from it, that filters down everywhere. Hope spreads. That's the beauty of it. So, and yeah, and let me throw something else in before we go to your white knuckled moment, um, because I, th I think it plays in, it, it was a different setting, but as you're talking, this just keeps resonating with me. So my wife and I are releasing a book about me surviving COVID and, and our joint journey going through that. And, you know, as we're recording this right now, I was in a coma two years ago and the doctors were telling my wife I was going to die. Well, in my chapters, as I'm leading up to me going into a coma, I talk about two different doctors. One, I give the name Droopy the doctor. I said, if Droopy the dog was a doctor, he would look exactly like this man. And another doctor I describe as a school marm with an exceptionally high opinion of himself. And, um, and neither of these guys were giving me hope at a time when I desperately needed it. Yep. And what a disservice to you, right? I, I believe you were failed by our yeah. medical system if you had doctors who were not giving you hope. So let's talk about this for a second, because I believe this is some of the most convincing, profound research. Again, when I talk to people, you know, I go into these meetings with uh, these coaching sessions with CEOs who are like rolling their eyes at hope. And I say, let me start with telling you what hope can do, what's proven for hope can do, for what hope can do. Surgery patients, they recover physically faster if they have increasing levels of hope. Cancer patients live significantly longer if they have increasing levels of hope, including terminally ill patients and those with really aggressive forms of cancer. There are actually instances, you know, at Sharp Memorial Hospital, I can tell you a story um, that uh, Dr. Chan Hellman talks about in his book, Hope Rising. In this story, in a hospital, a woman named Linda has this really intense heart attack. She's supposed to die. She gets to the ER and the doctors and nurses kind of know her fate. 
But there's a doctor across the room named Joseph Belazzo, and he's the head of emergency medicine. Now, this doctor has also spent the last few months uh, developing a new procedure. And the procedure involves making an incision into a heart and vein and putting the patient on a heart bypass machine. But there's one difference. He's not doing it in an operating room. He's doing it in the middle of the ER, this procedure. Huh. So he, he runs over to Linda and he identifies very quickly, she's not going to make it. We're going to try this. And it's specifically for patients who aren't going to survive surgery or even make it in. So he does this procedure. They get her into surgery. She wakes up the next day. She sees her family. She goes home. Wow. Right? This is somebody who was supposed to die. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about this is that four years later, they're actually now pioneering this new procedure. They're actually going to other hospitals to teach them how to do this. And the survival rate for cardiac arrest patients like Linda has shot up from 8% to 28%. 92% of those patients died. Mm. But here's where the story gets wild. It wasn't just cardiac arrest patients that received this new procedure that were surviving at the, a higher rate. It was all of them, including those that didn't receive this fancy new procedure. Why? So Dr. Belezo, he looks through the data, he's evaluating every variable. And then he remembers what the ER was like with his employees before the advent of this new procedure. And his words were, he described a nihilism, cynicism, right? That those employees felt when they saw a cardiac arrest patient wheeled into the ER. They knew the probability of their fate. They knew the agency they had and the options, the pathways they had were quite limited. They knew what was gonna happen. The advent of this new procedure unintentionally had changed what the outcome could look like for cardiac arrest patients like Linda. All of a sudden, they're seeing these people wheeled in and then they're seeing them go home with their families. Things look different for what's possible. Yeah. This new procedure had inadvertently increased the hope level of his employees. And in the process, 20% more people lived because of it. You know, so, there's... Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, no, please go ahead. I was just going to say, talk about how hope is powerful. Talk about how it's impactful. The healthcare research alone is incredible. But, you know, higher hope couples are associated with lower divorce rates. Um, students who have lower IQs can outperform smarter kids if they have higher levels of hope. Athletes can outperform athletes of equal ability if they have higher levels of hope. Childhood trauma survivors have significantly better life outcomes if they've been given a hope intervention at a young age. In fact, hope is one of the number one predictors of longevity, how long you live, how much hope you have. So the research really proves this. Well, here's something, and I, I don't think I've ever talked about this on podcast. I don't think I've, it's it's in the book. Um, when I was, when I was asleep, um, when I was in my coma, I had dreams and the dreams were a reflection of reality. And I've been able to take my wife's journal and pinpoint specific dreams. People have heard that before. What they haven't heard is the number of people that died in my dreams almost exactly matches the number of people who died in the adjacent room to me while I was in the uh, ICU. There was one more person that died 
then died in in that adjacent room. And that person died um, around the time that I was going down to surgery to have a feeding tube removed from my nose and a new one placed in my stomach. I know that dream because in my world, I was being drug up a mountain with a cable going through my nose uh, that was attached to the dead body of the person who died around me. And the best I can figure is they were talking about death um, somewhere around me when they thought I couldn't hear. I just had chills. That's extraordinary. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, how, how does that make you reflect on the power of the human mind? Um, it's, um, it, it's amazing. Um, and the, you know, one of the things, you know, when I guest on podcasts, one of the things I talk about is how during the six weeks that it was lights out for me, my trust in the doctors plummeted. It went through the floor and my trust in my wife went through the roof. And my best explanation is it's what they were saying when they thought I couldn't hear. Wow. You know, what's, what's interesting, what you're describing is that your brain was receiving these inputs and then creating a story for you that yeah. you could understand in the state you were in. Yeah. You know, one thing that's really interesting, describing going up a mountain. And I know you've done some mountaineering. I don't know, you know, like- Not like you, not like a lot you. Of people, but... A lot of your listeners don't know how cool some of the stuff you've done is and you're climbing, but like, you know, that's a, it's really interesting. Your brain, which we see in stories in general, we can talk about this, but your brain was co-creating a story with the external world. And it was one you could relate to. And I kind of wonder, did the idea of being on a mountain going up, it was a familiar feeling of challenge, of pain, of struggle that you'd overcome before. It's an interesting thought. I, I hadn't thought of that. Um, it was, it was in the North Carolina mountains where I've spent, you know, I've done a reasonable amount of hiking and, um, which is weird. I mean, I went back to, I've lived in, at that point, I'd lived in Texas for 17 years and I went back to North Carolina a lot for some reason. I went to West Virginia. So when I came up that mountain, they put me on a train, um, with the dead body next to me and. Uh, moved me, um, took me on the train to Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, you know, where I got off and, you know, the story continues. Uh, but that's a really interesting perspective that there was comfort there. Um, and also in my dreams, I went back to the Marine Corps a lot. I was advising the Marines. Um, unfortunately, one day I, I cracked a joke and, uh, you know, there was somebody that wanted to bomb some village. And I said, you know, if it helps some guys rocks off to bomb the village, let them bomb the village. They went off and bombed the village. And I felt horrible. I was like, no, I was being sarcastic. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, somewhere around that dream, um, we were pulling out Bagram Air, Air Force Base. Wow. Fascinating, actually. Yeah. It was an interesting time. We And you know what? Uh, we're going to have to talk about that more. I asked you a question a few minutes ago, and, <laughs> and then I cut you off, and I apologize for that. But No, I'm glad you did. 
Um, I asked you about white knuckled moment. I, I think you have one in mind. And if, if we could kind of wrap up with that, um, you know, this is, we, we've run over, which is fine because I think this has just been an amazing conversation. You're covering amazing things, actionable things that people need to hear. I'm so excited that you're here. Tell me about your white knuckled moment. Oh yes. Well, so many I've had <laughs> to be honest. Um, one that comes to mind very clearly was so when I when I was an advisor at the White House, I struggled with not feeling like I belonged. Right. And we all know what that's like in one way or another, yeah. even in, you know, profound leadership positions. You know, like you go into meetings, you look around and you're just like, am I going to perform? Do I know what to say? And what's really interesting was that when I left the White House, I started getting a lot of speaking requests to be on panels and podcasts and um, and, and videos and things like that. And I turned down every single one. I didn't think twice. I just knew my answer. And the reason was because I didn't feel worthy of working in that building. So I certainly didn't feel worthy of talking about it in public spaces to audiences. You know, I thought I had nothing to say. So it was really interesting. Something happened, which is that a friend of mine had a new podcast she was creating and she needed guests because it was a brand new podcast. And she asked me to do it. So I said, no, because that's what I did. And she said, I, I'm really going to push you on this. I'd really like you to do this. And so I said, OK, let's do it. And I used that podcast to start talking about hope in a new way. Because it was just in the back of my head. And, you know, like these are things we talk about with friends and family. And we're just like, why are, why are we doing it this way? Why can't we do it this way? Why aren't people considering this? Hope was that thing for me. I felt it was this missing piece in society. It was a missing piece in so many different domains of the world that could profoundly change everything for everyone. If we'd learn to tap into it, if we'd learn to use it as one of the most effective strategies out there to realize goals, which it's proven to be. So I use the podcast to talk about those things. And coincidentally, the Patagonia head of films heard it. So I get a message one day and it's from him. And I'm like, Patagonia, the clothing brand? And he says, you know, we want to make a film about climate change, which you used to work in, and alpinism, which I did. I loved climbing mountains, focus on Alaska. So they, you know, they said, can we talk to you? And I said, Sure. So I just spent these uh, calls, you know, between my actual meetings, just sort of doing, you know, free advising. You know, we all take those calls just to like, can I pick your brain? Just kind of helping out. And so I said, great, you want to make a, a film that covers these issues. Don't make a bad one. Because so many of the documentary films I had seen, especially in the climate space, were based on the premise that we were doomed. Now, there was this false belief this unproven belief that seemed intuitive, but was not evidence-based, that you can scare people into acting long-term. Yeah, yeah. It's not how the brain works. No. Right? And so when you lead something with fear, guilt, and shame, you tell people you're doing it wrong, the way you live your life is wrong, it's your fault. I hate those people. But when you do that, what does shame do to the human body? It, it does this. Your body physically retracts. You take less space and you freeze. It has a paralyzing response. It's a trauma response. Yeah. So they've been making people feel fear, guilt, and shame, and then yelling at them for not acting. I don't blame them for not acting. doesn't make me want to act either. So when I, when I talked about this with Patagonia, they were interested. 
And then I would just hang up and forget about it. And they'd call back and I'd, I'd be like, what is this project? Okay, yeah, share more thoughts, hang up and forget about it. I didn't think twice about these calls. And I really thought they were going to do like a David Attenborough, you know, here's the glacier melting and, and you know, kind of show that and then just say act on climate. You know, like we've all seen those films. That's what I pictured. And then on the third call, they had a production company on. And the director, who's Josh Bones Murphy, he started asking me all these personal questions about my life. Again, I just think of myself as this like random person sharing thoughts. He's like, where did you grow up? How did it feel when you left the White House? What was that like? And I'm very confused. So I'm just like, what? On the call. And he keeps asking me enough question, questions where at one point I'm on the phone and in my head, I'm like, oh my God, are they, are they planning on making the film about my story? Like what? But the idea was so preposterous that my story was worthy of being told. This is so embarrassing, right? In retrospect, I couldn't even bring myself to ask for clarification. Uh. Even say it out loud. Imagine, Craig, imagine you're like, is the film about me? Yeah, I'd I'd struggle with that. Yeah, and they're like, no. You'd want to hide under a rock for the rest of your life. But to not, to be on a call, to be on a series of calls where you're just literally wondering, is the film about me, is hilarious in retrospect. And so finally, I realized that is their plan. And it was just an innocent mistake. Other people had thought other people had explicitly asked me, and I hadn't spoken up. Uh, I'd sat there in silence. And so there was this moment of fully questioning my worthiness. And I talked to them and I said, listen, I get what you want to do. I kind of see your vision. I'm not the right subject, but I'll help you find the right one. I didn't feel like there was any reason to share anything. The one thing I knew was that hope was powerful, but my story wasn't relevant. Now, Patagonia kept pushing a lot over a period where they said, we think there's a story to tell here. And I said, I don't see it. But at one point they said, listen, if you want to talk about hope, we'll get that message out there. That's what, you know, that's what we have a big platform. It's much bigger than any you'll have. And I said, that's absolutely true. (laughs) So ultimately what ended up happening is I said, fine, if you're going to do it, I need to be honest with you because I don't want to be a fraud. I don't want to have to go in front of audiences and feel like a fraud. I live with bipolar two disorder. It's a huge part of my life. It's actually something I'm I'm actually not ashamed of. Don't lie. Be honest. That was this moment of like reckoning. And I remember I've had moments like this in the past where like at one point I looked in the mirror and just said, this is who I am. This is what I struggle with. I live with a mental illness. And then it was done. It was settled. And I could live my life. And so there's this this idea that we needed to integrate that into the film in some way. And so I made this very, you know, unnerving decision that we were going to tell my story honestly. And so the film, The Scale of Hope, came out. Uh, It's on YouTube for free for anybody that's interested by Patagonia. But the whole thing was that, you know, making a film about climate alpinism and then mental health is a very weird mix. You know, Patagonia is not a mental health brand company. You know, it's a different thing for them to talk about, but it was important for me to be honest in my own story 
in talking about who I am. So it was, it was this moment of kind of reckoning and, and realizing what it means to be authentic and the importance of that, because it's a disservice, I believe. This is what I love about your podcast and your leadership style, Craig, is that you are so authentic. You're so honest and vulnerable about your whole journey. And that's ultimately the thing that helps people. You know, like when people tell their story, sometimes they tell it in a way that drives disconnection, right? And those are the self-promoting stories, the stories of, you know, succeed like me. If you want to if you want to be as good as me, let me tell you how to do it. Now, while I think there are aspects of that that are relevant to people, kind of this aspirational story, it drives disconnection. It's intended, you know, intentional or not, to make people feel awe, but that's a separatist feeling, right? You and the viewer, you and the listener are further apart. That's the point. And you can also use your story to drive connection, to talk about that struggle, that pain, which we all know so well in order for people to feel closer, to identify. And that's actually one of the beauties of hope-based leadership, which encompasses vulnerable leadership, is just being honest in that way. Like a lot of my talks, I'll talk about what it's like. You know, we all know what it's like to struggle, right? Where things just pile up and life is just hard, right? We know what this is like. And I've had moments where I felt that alongside everybody else. And it kind of felt like I was sinking slowly until I hit this ground. And I kind of looked around one day and realized my whole world had gone black, right? We know what that's like. Yeah. And it, well, it, mm. I'm, I'm sorry, my I so greatly appreciate the authenticity and the vulnerability you've had. I think you brought so much to the audience. I wish we could talk more. We have run out of time. I, <laughs> so I, could, I swear I could go for another hour with you. I just, I, I love what you're saying. Um, it's just so incredible. Um, and I, I think uh, those listening should connect with you. How do people reach you? Uh, I have a website, mollykawahata.com, where folks can reach me. And I'm also on social media. Well, Molly, this has just been um, amazing. And, and I'm looking forward to getting this out because you have so much that's actionable. I hope people will reach out to you. Um, and, you know, I'm sitting there saying hope. Well, what does that hope mean? You've, you've already got me thinking. I hope you have other uh, people thinking as well. Molly, thank you so much for being on Leaders and Legacies. Awesome. Thank you for having me. This is Craig Andrews. I want to thank you for listening to the Leaders and Legacies podcast. We're looking for leaders to share how they're making an impact beyond themselves. If that's you, please go to alliesforme.com slash guest and sign up there. If you got something out of this interview, we would love you to share this episode on social media. Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone who would be a great guest, tag them on social media and let them know about the show, including the hashtag Leaders and Legacies. I love seeing your posts and suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss anything, please go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show. And it means a lot to me. It means a lot to my team. If you want to know more, please go to alliesforme.com uh, or follow me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. 
We'll see you next time.